Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The need to connect is at our core as sentient beings. It takes time, effort, and understanding. Sometimes it feels impossible. So we finally reached the season finale of Star Trek Discovery Season 3. It was a slow burn getting there. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, See what I, I see did, what you there? did there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Positively Trek. This is our review show of Season 3, the last episode of the season, That Hope Is You, Part 2. And I'm so looking forward to talking about a season finale because it does just that. It finalizes everything that we just saw. And now we got answers to things and we got answers to other things that we weren't asking questions about, whatever it is. But of course, I'm Bruce Gibson with Dan Gunther. Dan, how excited are you about talking about this episode? Oh, pretty excited. I mean, a little bit bittersweet, though, too, because it did kind of hit me after watching this for for the first time. You know, we had 23 weeks of Star Trek, of new Star Trek here in North America, anyway, in in the U.S. and Canada. And to have that finished, like it kind of helped me through some pretty gross times in 2020, right? And to have that done, there's definitely kind of a feeling of melancholy and stuff. But I am very excited to discuss this and really enjoy enjoyed how everything wrapped up and that sort of thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it, but there's just a little tiny bit of bittersweetness kind of woven in that as well. It is a little sad, but in some ways, now that we have all the answers, I'm kind of looking forward to going back and rewatching the season now mm-hmm. that I know what is coming up. So that always makes it interesting. Yeah, that's true. I have a friend and I've mentioned her before. We've had Zoom meetings, meetings, you know, we've been watching Star Trek over Zoom basically. And she's uh, just, we've just finished season two. She's never watched it before. So she's eager to get into season three now, but we have some short treks to watch first. But yeah, it'll be fun to go back through these, especially with someone who hasn't seen them, knowing where it's going to go. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that. Yes, me too. Well, you know what? I say we just jump right in and talk about this episode. So the episode starts off with going onto the ship, the Kelpian ship, where we have Culber and we have Saru on there, of course, with Sakal. But then we also know that Adira has been down, but they don't know that Adira is there yet. And this is the reveal of that. First of all, Culber is telling Saru that he needs to be talking to the to Sakal about being a Kelpian. They got to get through to Sakal so that they can eventually, if Discovery shows up, get off the, the ship. And they start to put two and two together and realize that Takal caused the burn, which we saw in the episode, two episodes prior to this one. And his outbursts, these emotional outbursts that he has, creates these little breaches in the ship's hull because as they're there, they're causing strife for him. Did you think that the burn answer that this was leading to was something that would satisfy you? Or did you think there might be even more to it than what we knew at this point? I kind of went into this thinking slash hoping there'd be a little bit more to it. And we do get kind of uh, what I call in my video review, a bit of a techno babble wallpaper over it, which makes it a little bit more palatable to me. Like the, the subspace properties of dilithium carrying this through subspace and spreading it. I'm like, okay, all right. Okay. It kind of makes a little bit more sense there, I guess. But uh, yeah, I can see how a lot of people might see this as pretty unsatisfying. To see this as the answer to a season-long mystery like that may feel a little bit underwhelming. 
I kind of came around to it a little bit in this episode and I think, you know, preparing us a couple episodes ago and then introducing it and, and expanding on it a bit in this episode helped a, a little bit, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's maybe not the groundbreaking huge OMG moment that we might've expected, but I kind of get what the writers are trying to say about trauma and connectedness and that kind of thing. Trauma has been a huge underlying theme of the season. So when viewed through that lens, it kind of makes a bit more sense and kind of comes together a little bit. You know, I'm glad you said that. It does make sense. I, I like that. I, it's not that I didn't like the cause of the burn. I thought it was interesting. I never, ever, ever would have suspected anything like this. I mean, if you had asked me months ago, what do you think caused the burn? I would have never sat there and thought, you know what? Or maybe it could be that there's somebody that is like in pain and screaming and then it caused the burn. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like, <laughs> who would ever think that? But to your point, it makes sense when you look at the season and the series as a whole, it kind of gets back to something I read that somebody said online that was kind of a negative comment about Discovery, but I found it to be funny. But in a lot of ways, it's going to your point. And that is that they were complaining how in every episode, somebody cries. And now, of course, the burn is based on somebody crying. And <laughs> I thought, well, that's kind of funny, but that's kind of a put down on the show. But it's kind of leading to your point. You know, it's about our emotions and, and how they affect us. And this person's emotions affected the Federation in a sense, mm -hmm. you know, in a scientific way. Yeah, and it, it, it's his isolation, too, that contributes to it, right? Like, his mother is the only person left, and then when she dies, that's the triggering event that causes it. Now he's all alone and disconnected, and then given kind of the theme of the episode and, and what we learn by the end of the episode, I think that's an interesting path for the show to take as well, because it's all about us remaining connected to each other and communicating with each other. And that's been taken away from him. And I think that's a part of it as well. Right. And our crew is in a foreign place for them in the future. They're cut off from their loved ones. In a sense, they are alone. They're not alone by being with each other but may feel alone with the rest of the galaxy because they're kind of an outside, <laughs> you know, what they're used to. They're kind of the outsiders and have to figure out how to fit in. And I think there's a lot of parallels, of course, in this episode with Saru. Mm -hmm. And Saru even talks about, you know, not being with his people and, and he had to make a choice, you know, and sometimes those choices aren't always easy. And he had a choice that he could stay or go. And he decided to go off and explore. And he's trying to convince so call that he can do the same. Yes, it's frightening and it's scary, but sometimes it's exhilarating. And mm -hmm. the mysteries of the universe are something you might want to explore. So, yes, you can always stay where you are and feel secure where you are, but you never get to experience life. And if you can just step outside and explore, you will discover so much more. And I felt like it was Saru really talking about himself. Yeah, there's definitely that aspect of him leaving home and, and potentially not seeing his people ever again. Of course, circumstances have changed in that regard. But when he left, you know, that was a very real possibility. That was what he was facing. Like you said, with the discovery coming to the future, how many times have we heard Saru say something along the lines of, yes, we are far from home, but we are together so creating that connection with the people around you, your chosen family almost would be kind of another theme that I see developing here with the, the Discovery crew in Saru. That's certainly the case. I would also extend that theme to Adira and Paul and Hugh being a found family, a family that they chose as opposed to the family that they were given initially. You know, I, I definitely see those parallels between all of these characters and that connectedness being at the core of what this season and this episode in particular have been about. Yeah, because later in the episode, Saru says to Sakal, you are no longer alone. Mm -hmm. And it's like it's almost a parallel to them. I mean, they are now part of this futuristic federation and such, and they have each other and they are no longer alone. So, yeah, there's a lot of good themes in this that kind of connect to what we've seen throughout the season and throughout the series. But, yeah, the whole cause of the burn, it, it is interesting how Sakal's genes have mutated so he can interact with the dilithium 
And so his emotional outburst with all this strong concentration of dilithium just has this ripple effect to other dilithium in the universe to cause this. It's an interesting scientific technobabble situation we've never seen in Star Trek before. And it's not even close to what we were predicting of, oh, could it be, you know, the Federation accidentally or purposely caused the burn? Or is it some other species that did something? Is it the Klingons? Is it the Romulans? I mean, we're, we weren't even close. Yeah. I am kind of curious now in, in retrospect, why Navarre was so convinced that they did it. Like what, what was the evidence that they thought for sure that they had caused the burn when we find out that it's totally not them at all? That's interesting. That is interesting. It kind of comes across to me as if people are just pointing fingers at each other. Well, but wasn't Navarre, they were doing some scientific experiments and the Federation was pushing them. Yeah, but... And they were afraid something could happen and maybe they thought this led to that, but it had nothing to do with it. No, apparently but they seemed pretty convinced, so you'd expect they have a lot of evidence, but yeah. Mm. Uh, I see a novel in our future. So again, back to earlier in the episode, we see Adira show up, and of course everybody who's on this hollow program looks different, a different species than what they are. And here is Indira as a Zahian, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I do love that Zahian makeup, so to see Adira in that, I thought that looked pretty cool. I do wonder what the process was for them to choose, you know, who would look like what? Like, did they get any input? Like, ooh, I bet you I'd look good as this, or probably not. Probably that was all decided by you know, the people in charge, but I don't know. I, I just, I love the blue and the makeup. Like this was a really interesting choice. It would have been cool if they would have gone to the actors and said, if you could play any alien besides what you're playing now, what would it be? And they just, okay, fine. We'll make you that. Yeah. I guess it would have to be like, they'd have to limit it a bit to be like Federation species or species that are, although it's the 32nd century, who knows what a Federation species is. Maybe the Klingons are part of the Federation. So one of them could have shown up as a Klingon. That would have been cool. Man. Yeah. We haven't even explored that. I, I have a feeling we're going to get that answer next season. Yeah. There was a map in the background of one scene in a previous episode that had a section that said Klingon zone, I think, or something that like that or Klingon territory. So they're out there with their own territory or, you know, depending on what that map was, it could be just the area they live in. Maybe they are a part of the Federation. I don't know. Hmm. Well, we do see at the end of the episode, we do see some former member worlds wanting to or considering to come back to the Federation. And, you know, if Navarre does come back to the Federation, that means Romulans will now be part of the Federation. That's yep, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's really cool. Just a really nice extension of when Star Trek moved from the original series to the next generation and the Klingons were now the allies of the Federation. I think that's a nice thing to see in the 32nd century, the Romulans be a part of the Federation. I think that's just a nice little bit of parallel there to how things were done previously. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, going back to how everybody looks on here, because as Saru explains to Sakal, things aren't always as they appear. That's my imitation of Saru, which without really trying. But then we also see Grey. Which is interesting. And for two reasons. One, that we're seeing gray, not just us, but the other characters. You know, we have Culber saying, gray? Like, is that you? And gray is a Vulcan. Yeah. And, and this was something that I had speculated might be the case. Like, maybe gray will be visible in the holographic environment. And sure enough, they did that, which I was really excited about. I think Ian Alexander played this scene beautifully. The kind of shock and amazement that he was being seen by the other people in the landing party and his overwhelming emotion and and you know hugging Culber and saying like I forgot what like this feels like and oh it was it was beautiful moment and uh, I got a little emotional there for sure well it did make me wonder it's like can he feel the hug if he's a hologram because he's not really there it's -hmm. just a hologram representing him can he feel that It seems like it. It seems like he can. Now, this was my thinking. They're past the 29th century. And the 29th century had a device called the mobile hollow emitter, 
does Discovery maybe have a couple of those on board? Could they beam one down and, and slap that on Gray? And <laughs> now, he, now he walks around like the Doctor? That would be cool. Yeah, I had that thought too. The, the other thing is it's probably not needed because it does seem that there are hollow emitters everywhere throughout all the ships and star bases and stuff. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's an outdated piece of technology because everywhere has hollow emitters. Unless they beam to some desolate planet, there'd That's be no true, hollow yeah. emitters. Unless there's hollow emitters on people's uniforms. Or like in, in the in badge. the com badges. Yeah, they might just yeah. be completely incorporated there. Oh, wow. There's so much to explore. I do also want to call out Bill Irwin's performance as Sukal in this episode. And especially, of course, as always, Doug Jones' performance. But the two of them together, I really, really enjoyed those performances. I thought that uh, Bill Irwin especially had this like childlike aspect to his how he portrayed Sukal. The actor's 70 years old, which blows my mind. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and and his performance here was just really really terrific playing him both as, you know, having this childlike way of looking at the world and kind of the the stunted development, but at the same time the years that he spent there I think come across as well. I think he's got this depth of loneliness and isolation that he brings to that that just really blew my mind watching this. I kept thinking how he's been there for over 120 years. I can't even imagine being somewhere for 120 years. I mean, we complain with COVID that we're staying at home all the time. (laughs) And this is just for a year or so. And for 120 years on a holodeck, I mean, that's a long time. I think adjusting to an outside environment would be very difficult. But the way his mother programmed it was to prepare him for it. But in a lot of ways, Sakal could have gone the other way and said, look, this is all I know. This is 120 years. I'm not interested in trying something new. I'm not interested in going the outside and being rescued. I gave up on being rescued years ago. I will remain here. This is my home. I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And of course, the crew would have said, well, the ship is going to be destroyed. And he, he might say, well, I want to go down with the ship. You know, it's like, this is this is who I am. This is all I've been. And I'm not interested in starting over. It could have gone a totally opposite direction. But I think, again, the program was there to prepare him for it. And of course, Saru, you know, knowing that they connect in the fact that they were both real. Sakal never felt like he was really part of that environment. He knew he wasn't a hollow, that he was different. And to find and meet someone that is like him and that is real, I think, speaks a lot to him. So obviously he he was ready and he did face his fears. And I mean, that's something we always have to do is face our fears. Absolutely. I did love when he shuts down the program. Well, first of all, when he goes to shut it down and, and there's the little tiny indentation for the hand. Yes. And he reaches and it expands. That was there was some emotion there because like he's such a tiny little child all alone for all those years. And he's grown up over the past century, but then yeah, when he turns and sees Saru in his actual Kelpian form and only then does he actually believe that Saru is real. He's like, Oh, you are real. I was just like, Oh man, that was heartbreaking. That was more emotional for me than him just watching the hollow of his mother dying. You know, just the connection with Saru. I mean, the whole thing was emotional. But I enjoyed that, too, was seeing what happened in those final moments with his mother and then his emotional reaction to it, which caused the burn. And then even the message from the mother to whoever is now rescuing him as to how to take care of him and take him back home, let him float on the waters and look at the stars. Oh, yeah. I And I do love, of course, that that gets paid off at the end. We see that actually happening with Saru and Sukal on Kaminar. Oh, beautiful. But also in that scene when he's shutting down the hollow, Gray is upset because as the hollow shuts down, Gray's hollow image is going to go away. And so here we have one character in Sakal who is being rescued, in a sense, and is being told that you are not alone, that you have all of us. And here Gray is starting to feel like he's going back to being alone again. Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, they give him the hope. At least Culver says, you know, we can figure it out. We can go back and, and do this again. We can create a hollow of you. You feel bad for Gray, but I think at the same time, we as viewers are also given hope that they're going to figure this out, that we will see Gray in season four as a hollow. Yeah, I hope so. I, I am curious, like, if that will play a part in the narrative of season four of them trying to figure this out, or if maybe we come to season four and like, hey, we figured it out. Gray's now... A character on the show. Either way, I think I'd be satisfied. But as as long as we get kind of an explanation of exactly what Gray is and how this is happening, because the other thing is, someone was talking about how Jadzia Dax undertakes the ritual to bring her former host's memories into her friends and stuff. And yeah, if they can do that, if those memories can transfer into another person, you know, even a person as alien as Odo. And Odo becomes like a hybrid of Curzon Dax and Odo. Like, yeah, it makes sense that you could transfer these to some sort of construct like a hologram and go forward with, you know, Gray the hologram or, or something or an android or something like that. Yeah. Or past hosts. I mean, Adira could conjure up different hosts at different situations that come into a hollow to help out. Yeah, kind of like Esri with Jurandax, except the host gets an actual holographic body to interact and interacts with more than just the the host that is there yeah well hopefully gray will no longer feel like he's stuck and we'll resolve that next season so now let's move on to some other things in this episode because you know that wasn't the only thing actually what we just talked about could just been an episode by itself absolutely yeah (laughs) you know there's (laughs) so much stuff in here so osira oh osira you know we were starting to really like you in the last episode of wanting to join the Federation and bring the Emerald Chain into it. And now you're all mad and pissed off and you want to go and start killing everybody. <laughs> it's like, I just was like, I'm so and I'm so tired of her. I want her out of here. Not that I don't like the character, but, you know, just what she's doing. And it's like what she's doing to her crew. It's like, I'm done with you. Let's get this done with. And poor Stamets is pleading with Admiral Vance, like, you know, let me go. We've got to go save Culber and Saru and everybody and Nadira. (laughs) It's like the stakes are up there and they're high. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I have some thoughts on Osira. In some ways, I'm sad with what they did with her character in this episode, especially after the last one showing so much promise for her and like interesting development. And this one, she's like, screw it i'm mustache twirly villain now and that's it you know and and i guess you know that's what the season finale needed i suppose but yeah i just some of the nuance seemed to have been lost that said there's some great parts for her in this episode i i do enjoy the scene in sick bay with aurelio for example where aurelio is seeing this side of her that he's never seen before but for the most part yeah she's just kind of a one note villain the other thing I had thinking about her was how the structure of this season with her as kind of the main villain to be overcome at the end really reminded me of season two where control didn't really get a mention until halfway through the season in just like a throwaway line like, oh, the Section 31's threat assessment program control, the, it does this. And then like, A few episodes later, suddenly it's the big baddie that has to be overcome. Similar to this season, Osira wasn't even mentioned until the episode Scavengers. And even then was just kind of like, oh, my my aunt Osira owns this place and she's mean or something. And Mm -hmm. like just gets a mention. And then by the end of the season, she's the big bad person that has to be overcome. It's it's an interesting thing that that same formula has kind of been followed this season. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just interesting that, you know, the big baddie doesn't show up till halfway through the season. And then like by the end, they're this big, huge threat. Yeah. It'd be interesting if they do the same thing in the next season, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, if it's just some pattern that they, they follow. But I agree with you. I, I was never a big fan of Osira because of the mustache trilling villain that she was coming across to me as in the beginning, I was like, Oh, we have to have the bad guy kind of thing going on. Okay. Whatever. And it wasn't necessarily her character or the performance. It was just that kind of trope of the, you know, we have to have a bad guy, but that last episode really got to me. I was really like, okay, I'm loving this character because there's mm-hmm. a lot more dimension to her. There's so much more that she's trying to do and is coming from left field. Something we weren't really even discussing 
expecting. That was her driving motivation through this episode. I mean, through the season. And to your point, yeah, it just kind of felt like it was thrown away at the end, just so we can have action scenes, which there were very good action scenes. Mm -hmm, But for me, a lot of fighting scenes over a while, like they go on a little too long for me. (laughs) And it's not just this show or anything. It's like in so many other things where at first I think it's cool, but they just play a little too long. And I'm like, okay. I get it. We're going to beat each other up for five minutes. Like, I'm starting to get a little bored, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, I mean, she, at least she did have moments where she said, I tried with Vance. I tried, you know? I'm glad they put that in. But I would have liked to have a little more of that. I would have liked to had more of her saying to Burnham, like, you know, I want so more, so much more. I feel like we can do something, but nobody's willing to work with me. And Burnham, like, trying to give her hope, like, you need to keep trying. Like, I wish we have had something a little more like that, but Osiris, just for whatever reason, isn't coming around. Yeah, a little bit more from her perspective and, and where she's coming from and why she's doing this, I think, which we did get, like you said, in the last episode. But this episode, we it just kind of, it's in the background and it's not really addressed directly you know like why does Asira like she cares about her people obviously on some level and you know wants to see a good future for them but that isn't even mentioned in this episode or anything like that and then when Asira is dealt with and and gotten rid of the emerald chain just kind of crumbles away apparently which I was like oh okay so we got told in the last episode the emerald chain is this banning multi-planet thing that has a Congress and all this stuff, but you kill Osira and they just kind of crumble, I guess. I'm not faulting that choice. Like I, I'm not necessarily wanting season four to be an exploration of the politics of the Emerald chain and like how that's all going. But at the same time, it just felt like all that world building kind of was really for nothing. Like it just was this faceless, thing out there that was a threat and now that Osiris gone it's not a big deal it's gone now yeah sometimes we talk about this when we review comics like you only have so many pages mm-hmm, exactly know? yeah and so you know I guess they feel like they just have to quickly tie things up in a bow I like to think that maybe it took some more time you know at the end of the episode that sometime there was a time span from what we saw at the very end that maybe and maybe they were already kind of crumbling and Osira was the last, you know, the straw that broke the Emerald Chain's back. Yeah, um, and I and I could see that being an argument given that they, they had said they're running out of dilithium yeah. and maybe this plan to ally with the Federation and become a part of it was like a last gasp of a dying civilization or something. I can fill it in, but I would have liked to have seen a bit more, at least lip service paid to the more interesting sprawling aspects of that story rather than just the action sequences and the the fight. Okay. Well, I'll make another note. This is a good idea for a novel or a comic. Yeah. Here's another thing. Navarre. We speculated last episode that, Oh, the Navarre fleet will probably show up probably like at the last minute or something in this episode, but they actually show up fairly early in the episode, Mm -hmm. but we really don't really get anything from that like they, there really wasn't a whole lot of purpose to the navarre fleet yeah not a lot it was what put osira on the ropes that made michael able to talk to vance to get them to negotiate a way out of there so they were kind of this you know overwhelming force that made osira a little bit desperate but that's kind of the main role they play in the episode which i i guess was an important part but I, I did expect a little bit more from them. Yeah, I kept expecting, ooh, wait, we're going to see a lot of things going on with the Navarre fleet. And then it was like, I couldn't really even see them that well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I will say that scene where she, where Burnham's talking to Vance, I love that scene from the bridge. And she's like, you can trust me. You can trust us. We won't let you down. I won't let you down. And even though she's making that plea, you almost expect, expect Vance to say, fine. But he just swipes the communication <laughs> close. And I love that part. I love how he just swipes it closed. But he does come through for her. He doesn't give her the answer. But man, that was one of my favorite Vance moments. I did like that as well. His face is just like, oh, I'm so frustrated right now. And I was like, is he swiping left or right? I'm not sure. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I loved that. And the fact that it was ambiguous and Osiris, well, that went well. And then, <laughs> right. then you realize the ships are standing down. I was like, yeah, that was a really cool little moment for sure. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying about Aurelio and the truth serum and working that on book, gosh, you know, book's going through all that pain and he's screaming and Burnham has to watch all this. And I just love how she has a plan because you know what? She doesn't believe in no win situations or no win scenarios. And I was just like, Ooh, something good's going to happen. And I love how she brought up the security field or the quarantine field to keep them out. That was brilliant. I thought that was really clever. I really enjoyed that scene just for the physicality of it and how everything was staged in the sick bay. I thought that was really well done. I'm glad there's an exit on that side of sickbay. I didn't, I hadn't really noticed that before. So <laughs> I know kind of negates the point of the quarantine, but okay, we'll go with it. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. I'm like, wait, if you had to quarantine a patient, you actually have a door. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is I didn't think about it till just right now when I was starting, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Why is there a door there? <laughs> but that's okay. I was really lucky. So that's good. <laughs> Maybe it's a door to a lab that then has an exit or I, I don't know. Maybe you can't enter in to the quarantine area from that door, but you can exit out when mm. the quarantine fields up. There you go. That's my headcanon. So anyway, we get to the Michael and Book diehard moment because we had Michael's diehard. Now we've got the Michael and Book diehard moments in here. And again, you know, the action sequences sometimes go a little too long for me. I haven't really read that much online. I try to avoid for a while... Like, I'm going to wait till read what people say online. But the whole turbo lifts kind of traveling through the ship and everything, I thought, oh, my gosh. As I'm watching that, I'm thinking I can hear a lot of complaints going on right now. But I'm <laughs> going to say that I really thought it was fun. <laughs> I loved seeing that. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be the people that complain. It's it's one of those things that's been brought up again and again and again. Yeah. It looks ridiculous. It's got this big, huge cavernous space in the middle of Discovery, apparently. I did love the like 32nd century versions where like the, the turbolift tube just appears as needed as it's going. I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. <laughs> right. The other thing I was thinking, and in the schematics, there is a chunk that apparently this eight story tall area exists in, you know, that's, that's where that all is. I was also thinking, we know that at least a century before this Starfleet or, you know, whoever had TARDIS type technology where the inside of a ship is bigger than the outside of the ship. We saw that in the Star Trek Enterprise episode, Future Tense. Maybe in Discovery's refit, they got this technology where the inside is bigger than the outside. And that's what we're flying through here. And uh, I was also thinking that would come in really handy with, by the end of the episode, we know that Discovery is delivering dilithium to all these different places all over the Federation and even non-aligned non worlds. Maybe they have a big cargo bay that carries dilithium that's, you know, bigger than the inside of Discovery should be because, you know, then they can carry more stuff. So that just kind of entered through my head. I was like, oh, it's, they, maybe they have TARDIS technology. Sure. Oh, okay. wow. I hadn't even thought about that. TARDIS technology. Hey, that's pretty cool. That would work. It did seem like it's too big of an area. You know, it's like when Book is on top of one of the, or maybe it was Burnham, whatever. I just remember it flying through and thinking, it looks like they're passing through Coruscant in Star Wars. Or something. Like it's <laughs> in a city or something. It doesn't feel like they're on, like in a ship. It seems too big. It feels like they're just passing things continuously. And yeah, it just seemed a little big. But at the same time, I thought it was really cool. Because, you know, as I think about the turbo lifts from the previous series, before Discovery came on, I used to try to picture like the turbo lift comes down and then it goes sideways. And I thought there's got to be all these little tracks between rooms and down corridors and stuff. But I kind of like this idea that there's like this big open area and things can just move sideways and up and down to go to the area that you want, you're trying to reach as opposed of going through corridors. I think that's a pretty cool idea. It's definitely interesting. The part that bugged me, I think, more than the, the area was like, it seemed that there were so many turbo lifts going to so many yes. different places. And I was like, where, who's taking these? Where are these all going? <laughs> I thought the exact same thing because Discovery is under siege. You know, people are held hostage. So it can't be that many Osiris people going around on Turbolift. Like, where are they going? Unless the <laughs> Turbolifts just 
automatically just go empty on their own back and forth to different places for at certain times because it knows at this time people tend to be leaving this area at this moment and it's going to that area to be ready for it i I don't know (laughs) maybe yeah (laughs) well we're not going to spend the whole episode about turbo lifts but hey i wanted to ask you one thing the whole scene before that where burnham takes a regulator badge and she speaks through the ship through a channel-wide speaker system where she's communicating with Tilly about celebrating a birthday and playing seven car stud and drinking synthanol and too bad they didn't have fireworks. And then Tilly talks about being in an nacelle and whatever. Did we ever see that? I don't recall that scene. We never saw that, right? No, no. That was just invented for this episode, which is why Tilly had to explain it to everyone for the audience to know as well. Okay. That's what I thought. But at the same time, I'm like, wait, maybe, was this something in season one I've totally forgot about or something? <laughs> you know? <laughs> because when she, okay, because this is the reason I brought this up. Cynthia Hall. Yeah. I was wondering if you'd bring this up because <laughs> I had the same thought. <laughs> Was this birthday in the 23rd century or the 32nd century? Because it could have been, yeah. They shouldn't have had Synthahol in the 23rd century. No, that, that wouldn't make sense. So yeah, it could have been in the during the last season, right? Did Tilly say it was a number of years ago? I think She just said uh, last year. Last year. Hmm. Maybe, so like, maybe it's like, maybe the current date is February 5th and that happened back in December. Yeah. <laughs> and she's just yeah. saying, last year. Yeah. Yeah. Like our birthdays, like right now it's January. Our birthdays were in October. I mean, yeah. we could say, you know, oh yeah, last year on my birthday. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's what I was thinking when I was like trying to make it all work. So book is fighting Zara on one of the turbo lists. And I mean, come on, you know, we have to have a great line in here somewhere. And Zara's like... Who do you think is going to make a bigger stain down there? You or that big cat of yours? And Books hits him. There goes Zara. And he goes, she's a queen. It was a great moment, of course. As soon as he, I knew he was going to die at some point anyway. But as soon as he insulted Grudge, you know he's done for. So, yeah, (laughs) that was a great moment. Uh, and yeah, she's a queen. Yeah. Great, great moment from book for sure. <laughs> I'm so, I'm sad we didn't see grudge in this episode though. Oh yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, you're right. We didn't darn. Oh, wow. It would have been funny if book was like, you can talk about Burnham, but never talk about grudge. <laughs> but speaking of Burnham, did you expect Osira to die at her hands in this episode or die at all? Oh, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know. I mean, I was kind of thinking she could die or they just arrest her. You know, they finally capture her and take her off to Federation headquarters and lock her in. Possibly. I felt when she got so villainy in this in this episode and was, yeah, like they were setting her up, I thought, to end at the hands of Burnham. I don't know. What did you think of that scene in the data core? As an audience, I feel like I'm not sure what's happening when she's getting pushed into the programmable matter. Like, is this supposed to kill her or what? Like, it was just kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen here. It it seemed a little confusing to me. Yeah, it did to me too. I didn't know what's going to happen when she got sucked up in there. It's like, is she going to live? I mean, we even see the matter going into her mouth. And Osiris seems to believe that's going to kill you. She walks away from it. She does turn around and looks, double checks one more time. But yeah, why did Burnham survive that? If Osiris thinks that's going to kill her. I guess because she had the gun and was able to shoot her way out, maybe. But Maybe? Yeah. I don't know. Again, that whole scene, all those, the fights going on there, again, that's one of those things that just went a little too long for me. But I did like how Burnham was able to come out of that and shoot Osira. And Mm -hmm. I'm so glad. Thank you. Thank you, Discovery, for not shooting Osira. Burnham walks by her and then Osira jumps up and attacks her. Like those Mm -hmm. scenes, that trope of, oh, you think somebody's dead, but they're not. Nope. She is dead. When we say she's dead, she's dead. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. And I did like Burnham's line. Unlike you, I never quit. I thought that was good. (laughs) People get good lines in this episode. Yeah, there are some good lines. You got to work in the good lines, especially for a season finale. Well, let's talk about our bridge crew. They had a lot to do in this episode, too. I'm glad that the writers like to play with these characters as a team. And they do work as a team. They get into that shootout with the regulators. 
But as that's going on, life support is disabled, so they're running out of oxygen, and Owa can hold her breath for 10 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, dang, I don't think I can hold my breath for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that they bring up, you know, diving for abalone, and, and those divers, like I've seen documentaries about them and how long they can hold their breath underwater diving into those caves. It's incredible. So I, I thought that was, that was really cool and, and a real world thing. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense then if she can hold her breath that long that when they can't go any further, they give the rest of the mission to her to go mm -hmm. to the nacelle and set off that thermochemical bomb between the uh, superconductors. I like how she's just barely making it and then little dot 23 shows up and says, you've got to get out of there. And I'm like, rescue her, rescue her. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, I was a little bit worried for Owo at various points in this episode because she started to get some character de development, right? Right. They yes. started talking about her diving in these caves and stuff. And I was like, I was flashing back to Arium. Oh no, we're starting to learn things about this character. They're going to kill her. But thankfully they didn't. Yeah, when she said about the Obaniki caves and so I was thinking, okay, so that's Nigeria. She's Nigerian. Like we're fine. Yeah, and she used to dive for Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought the same thing. We're finding out some background information. Oh no, that means they're going to kill her. But then of course, then she does live. The dot saved her. And Burnham was able to get the life support systems back up and going, telling everybody to report to the bridge. Owo and the crew get up and they're like, yay, we did it. Let's go. No, you did it. Yes, we did it. Did you notice how she made sure that it, we did it? It wasn't just me. It was all of us. I like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, part of that theme of connection and, you know, this found family, right? They're in this together. It's not just every person for themselves. Yeah, I don't understand some people that say that the writers of the show don't get Star Trek because, I mean, that is a Star Trek theme, you know? Family and Absolutely, being together. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. So we get on the bridge, which is the family room on the ship. Burnham is there and says, okay, let's, let's do our thing because right now they're stuck on the Viridian. So when they came out of warp, that one of the last commands that Osira gave was to get the Discovery into the Viridian, which it's now in the Viridian, but now Discovery needs to get out of the Viridian. And Burnham's like, well, you know, we'll just eject the warp core and it will just blow us out of here. And they're like, say, what? <laughs> you can eject the warp core? And Tilly's probably regretting giving command over to Burnham because, you know, earlier she says, we need you to lead us, you. But then later she's like, yeah, I was afraid you're going to come up with a freaking thing like the warp core. Come on. I had a little bit of problem now with this scene because Aurelio says that book is a special type of empath that he doesn't just feel with other species. He connects with it. So his DNA can help to communicate with the spores. So first of all, I actually like that idea. That gave purpose mm -hmm. to book's ability and comes into good play here. But... I kind of was wondering, well, wait, why did we have to eject the warp core and blow up the ship and take the chance that maybe, maybe this will work with Book? Like, wouldn't you just go ahead and try the spore drive with Book and get out of the Viridian? And if that works, you can always come back and blow up the ship. I just thought that was really too risky. Yeah, I, it makes, I don't know. I, I thought the main mission was to end the threat of Osira to the Federation and the secondary mission was to survive. That's a good point. Is, is kind of how I saw it. it was like, if they, if they just kind of save their own butts, then this threat keeps going on. But the main thing was to end the threat of Osira. Good answer. I like it. That works for me. You're right. You were right. <laughs> once again. Good. See, I like us talking through this. I wish we could hear what the listeners are saying or thinking, you know? I do. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a broader thing with podcasts and making YouTube videos and stuff as well. Like it feels like at times a conversation with the people who are listening, but at the same time, like they won't hear this until two or three days after we record it. So I'm like, oh, I want to know what they think now. And like, is this conversation going well? What do you think? Are, are you screaming at whatever you're listening to right now because we're getting everything wrong? That's what I want yeah. to know. <laughs> are you fast forwarding to the end? <laughs> or I don't know. 
Hey, I'm just curious. Does anybody listen to us at like twice the speed? Are we talking like really fast? <laughs> Did you just have to back up just now just to see what Bruce said? Because that got really fast. <laughs> exactly. I do sometimes listen to podcasts at twice the speed. Oh, if it no. works, you know, if I can still understand them because it saves time. That's only when I'm backed up on podcasts. I'm like, I got to get through all these. Anyway, let's go to the end here. By the way, when the Viridian blew up, Dan, were you concerned that the Discovery blew up with it? I mean, in the context of the episode, maybe a little bit because I know I'm supposed to be, but in reality, not at all. No. (laughs) I didn't. (laughs) You know they're all okay. Yeah, I didn't buy it one minute. As soon as the Viridian blew up, I'm like, well, I'm sure they got out of there. I don't doubt that. One thing I do wish is we would have seen uh, Book's forehead start to glow. When he was in the chamber. Oh, the chamber. I forgot about and that. That didn't happen. Yeah. But the, I thought about it later. And I thought, well, it's probably a good idea. If, if they're trying to play with the idea, like, did the Discovery survive or not? If we don't see it glow, that might indicate that book wasn't able to connect. So, right. you know, if we saw it glow, then we'd be like, oh, well, he connected. We saw him glow. Discovery does get to the Kelpian ship to rescue Culber, Saru, Adira, Gray, and of course, Sakal, uh, which we already talked about that a little earlier. So now they're back to now the Federation, where we have all these starships in a lines and discoveries flying right by them. It's a nice little homecoming. Yeah, I enjoyed all of this, the, the homecoming to uh, the Federation headquarters, of course, and then like the revelation of the Trill joining rejoining the federation and navarre possibly considering it and we get like even just a little tiny mini reunion between the uh the president of navarre and saru and i was i was looking closely are there sparks between these two is there a possible romance here? <laughs> a lot of people have you know been rooting for that because they saw sparks between them in in unification 3 and i was looking here i'm glad that they had Saru there for that moment. I just thought that was kind of nice. Yeah, and it was also nice to see Lieutenant Sahil show up. Yes, this was my favorite part of the episode. That was so cool to see him back. I was really happy. I'd kind of forgotten before, like going into this episode, I was like, oh, I hope we see that guy again. And then by the end of this episode, I'd kind of forgotten. Yeah. To, so to see him there again, I was just blown away. I love yeah, it. Yeah, as soon as he was there, I was like, okay, so what? Oh my gosh, yes, him. <laughs> you know, it was, <laughs> and when I watched it with my wife later, because I watch it first and then I watch it again with her, as soon as the, she saw him, she just like got all giddy and was laughing like, yay, <laughs> you know, I love it. And then when they say hi to each other, she was beaming. I was like, wow. I mean, what a great way a character connect with somebody who just has been in briefly in two episodes. He was such a terrific part of that first episode. So I'm so glad they brought him back for that. I was kind of like, Burnham says, oh, you found your way home. <laughs> and he said, oh, so did you. And thanks to you. And I was like, I would have been kind of like, you found the Federation? Like, could you have dropped back by and let me know? <laughs> but maybe that happened off screen or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, then we have the scene with Burnham and Vance and he starts talking about his daughter and she's, Oh, I didn't know you had a daughter. Oh yeah. 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 You know, I have a daughter. I have a wife. They're here. They're not here. You know, they're, they're away, whatever. Oh, and by the way, Burnham, there's a story behind this. Stop asking me other questions. Okay. And I just love how Vance is. But anyway, he, of course, he didn't say it, but it was kind of like that. But he starts talking about his daughter who refused to use numbers in doing math, and she would draw pictures instead. But, you know, she didn't do things the right way. She did it her way, and it worked. And then he realized, you know, you're the same way, Burnham. You know, I don't agree with your methods, but your methods work. It may not be the right way, but they work. And, of course, at this point, you know what's building up because we've already been told Saru's on Kelpian, you know, and he's trying to help Sakal. And he offers now Burnham the promotion, you know, and also Saru recommended her for command of the ship. And she's like, well, I'd rather make, you know, wait till he gets back and figure it out. And he's like, I need an answer now. We've got to get this dilithium to these other Federation worlds and reconnect everybody. I have to have an answer now. 
And I'm like, yes, and so do I. Thank you, Vance. I need this answer <laughs> right now. Yeah, none of this end of season two, we need to talk about the captaincy. Oh, that can wait till later. Come on, guys. Let's answer this now and get this out of the way. <laughs> yeah, there was a moment when she said, oh, I'd rather make that decision when Saru returns. I was just going to be like, no, stop doing this to me. No, I don't want to end the season wondering, does she accept the role of captain or not? You know, and it's like, Ugh. and then, of course. We see her come out onto the bridge and the crew's all lined up in their 32nd century uniforms. She's the captain. She sits in the chair. Beauty, 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 beauty. <laughs> that was so terrific. Yeah, I have a number of thoughts. So, of course, first of all, this is paying off the promise made in the first episode of the whole series, right? Where Giorgio says, I think it's time for you to have your own captaincy and and. Yeah, this is paying that off. This has been the goal. Also, I had a thought about Starfleet in the 32nd century versus what we've seen primarily of it in the 24th and 23rd centuries. Captain Kirk, you know, kind of earned, kind of not this reputation of, of being a maverick and being on his own and, and doing things his way, much the same way that Vance talks about Burnham being that way. And that was needed in the 23rd century. A lot of times the starship was cut off from headquarters and they couldn't just call the call Starfleet and ask for instructions. Kirk had to make calls on his own to do what was best for the situation. The 24th century was a little bit more about following protocol and, and being a little bit more, you know, playing inside the, the lines and stuff. I feel like Burnham is a captain or or up to this point a commander in the style that Kirk was. A little bit more maverick, a little bit more do things my own way, ask for <laughs> ask for forgiveness after the fact rather than permission before the fact. And that might be the kind of captain that Starfleet needs now. Things are a little bit more rough and tumble like they were in the 23rd century. They're a little more unable to kind of follow the strict procedures because things are a little bit more wild west. Mm -hmm. So I think it fits. I think she's the perfect captain and Vance has kind of realized what those strengths are and how they can be useful at this particular time in the history of the Federation. Is this one of those Janeway 23rd century cowboy diplomacy situations? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> cowboy diplomacy is what's needed and that's what Burnham is all about. Yes. <laughs> I love no, it. And I thought about that too, because even during like the fight scenes, I thought she's coming across a little to me very Kirk-like, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, there was one moment in the fight scene where she like launches herself at Osira and knocks her into a wall. And I was like, that's totally a Kirk move. <laughs> like, I'm just going to throw myself at this person and not care about how I land or, or where I end up. You know, that was totally Yeah, Kirk. they must have read the Kirk <laughs> Fu book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So what do you think of seeing the crew in the uniforms? I mean, I, I want to hear what you say first. It was nice to see. Like, I liked that moment that they're like, okay, now we're part of the fleet. Now we're here in the, the 32nd century. We are all one big happy fleet, as Khan would say. It's kind of a weird reference. But yeah, it, it was nice to see for the symbolism of it. For the actual look of the uniforms and how they look on the Discovery Bridge, I was kind of like, eh, I don't know. Everyone's just kind of fading into the background. And aesthetically, I don't think it worked very well. And I don't know exactly why, but symbolically, I thought it was a really nice move. Well, it's like the difference between the uniforms we see on TOS and then we go to the motion picture uniforms. You know, they're very mm. colorful on one hand, and then the motion picture, they're very bland and drab. And I just recently rewatched the motion picture last week for the umpteenth millionth time. So when I saw them on the bridge in the uniforms that are mostly gray, it made me think of the motion picture uniforms, in a sense, which is something mm. I've wanted to see more of. I'm not saying they're my favorite uniforms, but... There's something about them that I do like. Sometimes I like that more toned down look. So I liked seeing the crew in these uniforms. But there were times like when certain shots where it just sometimes the 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 fit of them or something just doesn't look right on them. Maybe because it's a different fit from the previous uniforms they wore. And even when Burnham was in the captain's chair, the sleeves seemed a little big on her. 
<laughs> I don't know. Hmm. Uh, at least in a still shot that I saw. But I predict that we will see different uniforms on them next year as introduced as new Federation Starfleet uniforms under this new revised rebirth in the Federation. That was kind of my guess as well. Either that or they repaint the bridge so mm. they don't just get lost in the back. Because yeah. I, I was like, what looks weird about this? And I actually watched Jesse Gender's review and she mentioned that, yeah, those gray uniforms look amazing in like the bright white Starfleet headquarters. But on the Discovery Bridge with that kind of bronze copper background, they just kind of get lost. And I was like, oh, that's it. Yeah, it looks weird. That's funny. So. I saw that same thing from Jesse Gender. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. yeah and I, I kind of agree with you. I think they'll have different uniforms. That's my guess as well. Yeah. But I did love seeing them in the uniforms. I thought that was pretty cool. Speaking of uniforms, one interesting thing I learned just this morning from Trek Corps was Tilly. You notice in that scene, she's wearing blue, right? Sciences. So she used to be engineering, but now she's in the science division. Apparently when they shot the scene, she was wearing red command instead of that color, but they digitally changed it to blue for the scene. And apparently it was so they don't limit their options for what they decide to do with the characters next season, because if she's in red, it's pretty clear she's the first officer, right? She's in command right. colors. She's the first officer of the ship, but they're not sure what they're, or, or at the time of release, I guess, or they want to hide what they're doing. I'm not sure, but they changed it to blue to open up their options for what they can do with the characters, according to this post from Trek. That's Corp, interesting. Which, uh, it's very interesting, yeah. yeah. It's good they're not painting themselves into a corner. I, I think that's a good idea if that all this is true. <laughs> painting themselves into a corner digitally, quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, one of the other things I thought about this episode is this is the second time in a series that we've seen someone who becomes the captain later in the series. What I didn't think about so much so was the timing that it happens, that Ben Sisko becomes captain at the end of season three, and now Michael Burnham becomes captain at the end of season three. Yeah, I saw this note in the, in the notes that you prepared here, and I hadn't thought of that either. That's really fascinating. Of course, you know, Sisko was captain in all but name, as they say, yeah, right? but uh, just kind of got the rank of captain. But yeah, that's an interesting parallel, of course, that, that Burnham is now the captain and, and lead character, of course, of the show as well. And I can't take credit for that season three observation thing. That came from Memory Alpha. There was a little note about that in there. I saw it the other day. Oh, so. very nice. But then she has her little tag phrase at the end. Let's fly. <laughs> I liked it. I, I It was okay. I don't know. Not my favorite. I was kind of like waiting for the shot where it goes to Tilly and she goes, <laughs> like <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna workshop some more stuff but yeah it was cool it was cool <laughs> <laughs> that would have been funny <laughs> if Tilly's reaction yeah. or if she leans over and says we'll talk later <laughs> exactly i have some experience in this we'll we'll work we'll workshop some different ideas don't worry manifest is not on the list right and we'll get out of these gray uniforms uh <laughs> So then the whole episode ends with a quote from Gene Roddenberry, and then the original Star Trek theme plays during the credits. I, I was just curious, why do you think they chose this episode, the end of the season, to put a quote from Gene Roddenberry in? Well, this particular quote, I feel like this is directly relating to the situation we as a species in this world are in right now and, and have been dealing with while this was all airing and stuff. So I, I thought this was such an appropriate quote for what we've all gone through and what Star Trek has meant to me through all of this as well in, in some ways. So this really spoke to me as like being of the moment for, for what we have experienced in 2020 and are continuing to experience now in 2021. Yeah, and just as a reminder, that quote is, in a very real sense, we are all aliens on a strange planet. We spend most of our lives reaching out and trying to communicate. If during our whole lifetime, we could reach out and really communicate with just two people, we are indeed very fortunate. That almost sounds like something Spock would say, or even Kirk, what anybody in Starfleet would say, mm -hmm. you know? I wonder where this quote is actually from. 
Probably just an interview. Yeah, I'm not sure. Or or possibly like one of the behind the scenes inside Star Trek books or something like yeah. that. Maybe something. I, I'm not sure. I'd like to research that and look into that a bit. But uh, someone out there probably knows and is currently writing us an email or, or commenting on our post in the Positively Trek discussion group as we speak. So Or yelling at us at their speakers right now. <laughs> so, all right. Well, final thoughts on That Hope Is You, part two. Oh, wait, we got the part two. Yay, I can rest easy now. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a satisfying conclusion to the season. It was nothing, it didn't like blow me away. I wasn't completely, totally 100% amazed and awed by this episode, but there was nothing that I hated about it either. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a very satisfying conclusion to the season, answered a lot of questions and put us in a really interesting place for next season. It's the first Star Trek Discovery season finale that doesn't have like a mini cliffhanger of sorts. We have changed premise. We have a new situation going into season four, but not at the level of, oh, the Enterprise has shown up with a distress call. What's this all about? Or we're going through a wormhole to an unknown future. What's going to happen? It's not quite on that level. So it, it's a interesting change. I was expecting some sort of mini cliffhanger. And I was kind of pleasantly surprised when we didn't get it because now I'm not wondering about some little thing. Like I said, there's certain situations like when and how will Saru come back and what will his role be when he does? Is Michael's captaincy permanent? What's going to happen there? Those are questions that I'm content to wait for season four to have answered as opposed to oh my God, I can't wait to see what's happening on the Enterprise. Why are they here? What's going on? You know, or I can't wait to see this 32nd century future. Oh my God, what's happened kind of thing. So on that level, I think I'm more satisfied with this ending than previous seasons. And I'm really excited for the possibilities and where the series can go from here. So yeah, I'm going to give this a bit of a bewildering trip through a vast void with flying turbo lifts that leaves me a little bit scratching my head, but still kind of enjoying the sights and what's going on. I have to think through that review, uh, grading that rating there. Hmm, let me think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, what you were saying about you enjoyed the season finale. It was really good. Didn't blow you away. It's similar to the review that Jesse gender even said on her YouTube channel which I agreed with that. So I, yeah, it's exactly how I feel too. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with it. it. It's not like my favorite episode of Star Trek. It wasn't nearly the worst or anything. It was just a fun season finale. I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. There's a lot going on. I think the thing is when it comes to episodes that I really love, it's more of the more intimate, maybe slower episodes, more focused on a, on a character or two. And there's just so much jam-packed into this. So it's a thrill ride and it did its job and I enjoyed it. And I'm glad there's not a cliffhanger because I, I really don't want to like sit here and wait a year to figure out what's going to happen next. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like how this ended. And I've heard some people say that, you know, it feels like this could be the end of the series. It could just stop right here and be a satisfying conclusion to the entire series. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad it's not. Since seeing this episode, I do wonder about that particular part of fandom and i put that in quotes are they going to use this as evidence in quotes again that like there actually isn't a season four and they've been canceled and they're not coming back because clearly they didn't set up a cliffhanger -y type thing and i'm just waiting for those people to start making that argument because i'm my eyes are ready to roll out of my head those at that. people those people <laughs> hi those people oh that's right you won't listen to a podcast called Positively Trek, so you're not hearing this right now. <laughs> so yeah, I would give this episode, uh, I, I, I tried to hold my breath for 10 minutes, but I fell short by a minute or two. Oh no, that's a tragic, <laughs> that's a tragic rating. Well, no, I'm saying that it's like an eight out of 10. Okay. You, you tried to hold your breath for 10 minutes, but you weren't in a situation where you had to. Right, you were, you... right. Okay. Right. All right. I get it now. I get yeah. it now. Oh, well, and I just like to hang out and see who can hold their breaths the longest and she always wins. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So. Oh, wow. That's it. 
no more episodes on Mondays until we get some new Star Trek. I don't know when that's going to be. Yeah, I'm definitely sad about that. It kind of, like I said, it hit me after watching this episode as soon as it was done and that original series theme music played over the closing credits and I kind of went, oh, it's done. So we've got The Expanse and WandaVisions coming next week. That's what I'm focusing on. <laughs> cool. Well, Dan, when people want to find you online, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I make videos mostly about Star Trek, but also about a few other things. And Instagram, Kurtrats47. And those are kind of the main places that I hang out. Nice. And I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. I'm on this week's episode of Open Channel with Chris Littlefield talking about this episode. Well, actually reading listener comments about this episode of Discovery. And I'm on episode 12, a recent episode of The Janeway, which is a Voyager podcast, talking Voyager on there. So I've been doing some you know, different podcasts about Star Trek lately. It's kind of a coincidence, but probably after this week, I won't be doing any but this. But yeah, uh, send us an email, PositivelyTrek at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at PositivelyTrek. Find us on Facebook and our Facebook group, uh, the discussion area, and we'll let you right in to have uh, fun Star Trek discussions in a positive manner. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, stay positive. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.